Wisdom for life, one wife. <laughs> the end, thank you. <laughs> happy wife, happy life, All right? Amen, I've got an amen there. I could go on all day. Uh, so welcome. Um, I know that uh, Mike mentioned Proverbs chapter 1 last week, but I just want to go back to it just to kind of lay a foundation for what I want to say uh, this week. So right at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, it says, let me tell you why this book is written. It, re it reveals its purpose and its intention. It says the book of Proverbs is written so that we may attain wisdom and discipline, or other words, instruction. We may attain wisdom and discipline. Biblical wisdom is not just the accumulation of knowledge. So 1 Corinthians 9 tells us that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So when he's talking about wisdom there, it's not just that we would accumulate uh, a bunch of pithy sayings that we can then spout to other people. Uh, you know, the stitch in time saves nine. I know. Put that away, mate. The stitch in time saves nine. Nine what? Nine what are we, nine what are we saving? And, and how do you stitch time? And, I, you know, I can't think of a time in my life where I've ever been in a circumstance or situation where I have thought this moment is going to be vastly improved if I just have a bird in my hand right now. Oh, Unless you're a pirate, I don't think there's any time where you're going to think, what I need right now is a bird in my hand. I would much rather have two birds in a bush. That's where they live. That's their natural habitat. And just before I move on, seriously, why, why, why would I want my cake if I can't eat it? If I can't eat it, I don't want it. What's the point in having it if I can't eat my cake? So, okay, Proverbs is not about the accumulation of knowledge. The fundamental challenge of Proverbs to me is not information, it's transformation. Carl Jung said, beware of wisdom you did not earn. Biblical wisdom is not the accumulation of knowledge. Biblical wisdom is the appropriate application of knowledge. And Proverbs 10.12 tells me that that's got something to do with being governed by love. So wisdom is the careful attention to appropriately apply truth in a manner that is the most loving and highest to another individual. Wisdom is to seek to be a blessing and to bless and to shape my environment, my society, my sphere of influence. And discipline or instruction, that's the process of learning how to do that. It's being corrected and trained to learn that fitting application. And why do we do all of those things? Well, verse 3 tells us, so that we might live the prudent life which, again, it self-defines there that this prudent life has got something to do with doing what is right, what is just, 
of what is fair. Prudent, if you look it up in the dictionary, it says it is acting with or showing care and thought for the future. So the challenge here is to learn how to appropriately apply God's truth in a way that's highest and best for others, that I might show care and thought for the future, actively seeking to make this place better. Or Proverbs 13.2 says, a good man leaves an inheritance. And this action, all the way through Proverbs, this action is referred to as a thing called the fear of the Lord. Okay. Uh, Many years ago, um, there was a a group of youth with a mission, uh, young people, 18 to 24-year-olds, and they heard on the news about a, a refugee camp that had been started just outside of Hong Kong. And as they learned about it, they were overcome with a desire to want to help these refugees. And so they got on an airplane and they went to Hong Kong. And these young people, they went to the refugee camp and they said, hey, we're here to help, what can we do? And the people leading the refugee camp said, you can do nothing. We've got plenty of NGOs and other organizations here. There's nothing for you to do. And they said, well, look, we've come a long way. We'll do anything. We just want to serve. It turned out that the camp was, um, was about three times as full as it had been planned for. They had so many people that were coming to this camp that the facilities were overrun. And there was a, uh, a row of latrines that had been set up at the edge of the camp. And they couldn't keep up with all of the people. And um, so they, they basically, they said to the young people, the white members, um, if you really want to help, there is a ditch that is full of human sewage. And the latrines are broken and overflowing. If that's where you want to help, there you go. So the has spent literally weeks, I think it was about three weeks, shoveling human waste and cleaning the latrines. They fixed them, and then they cleaned them up so that they were serviceable again. For three weeks, they did that. And at the end of that, the people of the camp came to them and they said, what else can you do? They went on to be there for years and had a significant presence within that refugee camp. One of my favorite Proverbs, I think it's very funny. It's also slightly cryptic. It's Proverbs 14.4. It says, where there are no oxen, the stall will be clean. But from the strength of an ox comes an abundant harvest. Some of you have clued into this, right? (laughs) Biblical people would have got this right away because biblical people, animals were a big part of their everyday existence. Everybody kept working animals. They were essential to life. And so, has anybody here got an animal? Anybody got a pet? Anybody that's got a pet, you know that animals come with a lot of, how can I say, mess? Would that be okay? Yeah. Animals are messy, right? Um, I've never kept animals on a biblical level, um, but I know that when I let a dog out in the mornings, the few times that I do, I generally try to pretend like I'm still asleep so somebody else has to take the dog out. But um, the few times that I do take it out, the first thing I've got to do is, is I've got to get the poop scoop, right? I've got to shovel the dog's waste. Um, it's a universal constant. If you have animals, you have waste. Now, let me confess something to you. In my personal life, I like a clean stall. You, you understand what I'm saying? 
in my past, I don't like, I don't like mess. I, I don't want stuff messing up. I, I got my stall nice and clean. I've got it set up the way that I want it. It's just nice. I don't really want messy and unpleasant things coming, invading my nice, quiet little existence. It's, it's stressful. It's, it's inconvenient. And it, and it smells funny. I want a quiet life. I, I, I want a nice, quiet, clean stall. Do you understand what I'm saying? But the proverb says, where there's no mess, nothing worthwhile gets accomplished. See, I don't want challenge and difficulty. I don't really want inconvenience in my life, but I need it. See, Proverbs challenges me to think beyond the comfort of my own situations and my own skin. It challenges me to remember that, you know what, it's not all about me. And it doesn't matter how things are with me if they're not right for everyone else. Proverbs challenges me that I shouldn't be so complacent as to sit in my own comfortable, clean little stall while there are other people in the world that don't share the blessings that I take for granted. Ultimately, that I have an obligation to rise to the challenge and accomplish something worthwhile, something meaningful, something bigger than myself and my own personal comfort, something that leaves the world a little bit better than when I found it. See, the deep wisdom of the Proverbs is that life will present difficulty, it will present challenge, but those are the times of my greatest potential because my response in those moments matters. Because in the laying down of my life for other people, I usher in the potential of a better future for everyone. See, Proverbs challenges me that a life insulated from the challenge of adversity and inconvenience is a life that forgets that we embrace difficulty, we make sacrifice, for the betterment of all mankind, for a better future. And that is the life of the prudent. Proverbs 23.7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now, I've got to be honest, that's King James Version. It doesn't say the same thing in the NIV. But I figured the King James Version is good enough for the Apostle Paul, so it's good enough for us, right? So... As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Many years ago, I was in Chennai, India. And uh, I was talking to a young man. Uh, he worked with Youth for the Mission. And he was a church planter, a young Indian. He was a church planter. And I said, tell me about the church that you're planting. And he said, well, I'm, I'm working in the fishing community. The, the fishing community were very poor people. And they lived on the sand. They lived on the beach with their boats. And they had little shanties, little cardboard uh, shacks, basically, there on the community. So he said, I, I went to that community, and I went to um, serve the children, to do education and run programs for the children. And he said, the first day that I got there, the men of the community surrounded me. And they started to shout at me and swear at me. And they told me that I wasn't welcome as an outsider and to go away. And then they beat him. 
The next day, with his cuts and his bruises, he went back to the fishing community. And the men surrounded him, and they told him he wasn't welcome. They didn't want him there, and they beat him. And the next day, with his cuts and his bruises, he went back to the fishing community. And the men surrounded him, and they beat him. And that went on for several months. He told me one time he was beaten so badly that it was over a week before he could get out of bed. But when he did, he went back to the fishing community and they beat him. He said, and then one day something happened. The guy surrounded me and started shouting at me and telling me that I wasn't welcome. And all of a sudden, the women from the community surrounded me. And they started to shout at the men and they said, this man loves our children more than you do. Leave him alone. And from that moment on, he was accepted and he planted a church in that community. Now let me tell you, that's not in any church planting book I've ever read. Why would you do that? I, when I was listening to him, I thought, there's loads of communities, there's loads of villages in India. There's loads of places that need church plants. Why did he do that? He did it because he ascribed such value to a people that were deemed to have no value. And that that shaped his belief and his actions generated the results. See, Proverbs challenges me that my behavior reveals what I really believe. That belief shapes behavior and that determines our actions and our results. Or perhaps the Proverbs were said like this, if I'm not seeing the results that I expect, don't look out the window, look in the mirror. See, I find that often our fundamental perspective of the world shapes our engagement with that world. And too often, we tend to think that the world is a bad place full of poverty and full of violence and full of bad things and that ultimately it's beyond much help. Is that a true perspective? Well, with a resounding no, that is not a true perspective. Have a look at some uh, information that's made available through a guy called uh, Professor Reisling who works with the World Health Organization and World Bank and, and many other people around the world. Um, regarding some of these issues. But these are some true facts. In 1973, 50 years ago, 50% of the world were in what's classified as extreme poverty. They had less than $2 a day. 50 years ago, 50% of the world. Do you know what that number is now? It's less than 9%. And it's firmly believe that that can be eradicated within the next few years. Extreme poverty has gone down. Are there 800 million people in extreme poverty this moment? Yes, but it's down from 50% just 50 years ago. Can we go on to the next slide? I'll show you some other things. Today, I don't know if you can see all of these, but today, 88% um, of the world has access to clean drinking water. And that's up from 58% just 1980. Today, 90% of young girls around the world will go to primary school and enjoy that education. 
You might also see there that um, children dying before their fifth birthday is down from the mid-19th century to 1950. It's down from about 40% to less than 4%. 96% of children born in the world today will surpass their fifth birthday and live on their lives. Deaths from battle is down. Violent crime is down. Can you go to the next slide? I'm just going to go through these quickly. There's another one that shows that literary around, literacy around the world is up to 86%. Uh, that more people are enjoying new movies, uh, new music and stuff like that. What that demonstrates is, is that the larger percent of the world is no longer struggling about what we're going to eat today. That they can actually spend time thinking about music and books and art and so forth like that. In almost every metric that you can possibly think of, the world is a better place today than it has ever been in the history of the world. And it's getting better. It's improving in almost every measurable metric that you can think of. And it continues to get better. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs challenges me to appropriately apply knowledge, to act in a way that shows care and thought for that future. That God created this world and he said it was very good. And at no point has he ever changed that perspective. He still thinks it's very good. That should be my fundamental position because it's certainly his. Romans 8.19 says that all of creation groans for redemption. It also says that it waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That phrase doesn't mean that the world's waiting to see who goes to heaven and who doesn't, who's saved and who's not. It's not about you do for you. The Proverbs tells us, no, you do for others, not for yourself. The pro that thing, it waits in eager expectation. It's not saying who's a Christian and who's not. Creation is waiting for the children of God to reveal their true identity to reveal their true beliefs and their values and to act in congruence with that and physically reshape our communities, to reshape our society, to reshape our spheres of influence, to actively engage in the hope that tomorrow can be better and it will be better. Are there still broken down walls and overgrown gardens? Sure. But my redemptive purpose is to engage in fixing those walls, to work to make all things around me better because I fundamentally believe they can be better. Psalms 24 says the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And he's just getting started. Proverbs challenges me to see the riches of where I am, to be grateful for what I have, but also to take the opportunity to do my best and to see what will happen. It's an open question, but I wonder, to what degree could we actually make things better if that's what we aimed at doing? A life where good people do nothing, 
and don't align their actions to make the world a better place is not a life of the prudent. So Proverbs 16.32 says, Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. It's over 30 years ago now, but um, I, I know it's hard to believe that because I look so young. But over 30 years ago, um, I graduated from seminary and I had a shiny master's degree of theology and I went into the pastorate ministry and I was convinced of two things. One, I knew everything. And two, I was right. I was, they were so lucky to have me. I was such a blessing. Honestly, God loved me that they thought I was an idiot. That's, that's the title to my autobiography. God loves me, but everybody else thinks I'm an idiot. Today, I know two things. One, I know nothing. And two, I'm pretty sure I'm wrong about that. Yeah. The, the, the Oracle of Delphi, um, when Socrates was being tried, it said that Socrates is the wisest man in the world because he knows his own ignorance. See, the reality is, is I, I know nothing. I don't know anything. But I know that I know nothing. And I wonder if that isn't the beginning of wisdom. It's actually very helpful for me to remember that I'm an idiot. And I'm very lucky because I've got a devoted and loving family that if I forget that I'm an idiot, They will love me enough to remind me. <laughs> and, and, and that's helpful. That's because Proverbs challenges me to embrace the humility of my ignorance. That perhaps it would be helpful for me to engage with others with a modicum of humility. Instead of telling people why they're wrong and why I'm right, perhaps I should engage with people and ask them, Hey, tell me more. I want to understand. Proverbs reminds me that I'm not the source of all wisdom. And perhaps I should just humble myself and learn from others. And particularly to be willing to learn from others that have gone before me. I think it's a very dangerous world when we begin to disassociate from the accumulated wisdom of those that have gone before us. Better a patient person, one with self-control, than one that takes a city. See, if I want to affect change in the world, if I want to see broad-scale social revolution, if I want to see nations discipled in spheres impacted, then I have to start with affecting change in my own life. Better self-control than one who takes a city. If I want to make wide-scale change, well, you know where I need to start? I need to start by finding small things in my own life that I can change to make better. And start working on those small incremental things. And when I get those down, to find the next thing and make that small incremental change in my own life.
And I wonder what the world would look like if I took that challenge seriously. If I began to identify small things in my own life that I knew that I could do better. Small things that would reflect the generous nature of the character of God and make incremental change. Again, a life where we lack the humility to learn from others, where we lack the humility of ignorance, where we're not willing to rise above our own sensibilities and practically demonstrate love to those who may not love us is not a life of the prudent. See, the good life is not what is good and pleasant for me. The good life is not that I get to live in Bodrum or Bly Bly in a life of relative peace and prosperity. The good life is not that God has given me all these great things and isn't that lovely. No, the good life is a life that embraces challenge because we strive for a time when everyone can enjoy peace and justice and enjoy a better tomorrow. The good life is a life where our belief and our behavior shouts of the hope and generosity of the redemptive Lord of the dense, and that that really is good news to those that are hearing it. The good life is a life of humility and unconditional love and acceptance where we seek to bless others, where we seek to be a blessing. It's not for my own aggrandizement. It's that I can employ it in the betterment of others around us. Wisdom is applying that knowledge in a way that seeks to make the world a better place.